You're listening to Awakening with Rabbi Ami Silver on the Shefa Podcast Network. Join Rabbi Ami as he shares from the wellsprings of Jewish spiritual teaching and practice and guides us on a path of healing, transformation, and awakening to experiencing the divine. There's something very funny that we do on Sukkot. And we do it because the Torah tells us to. It's actually the central mitzvah of this holiday. We take four different parts of four different plants, we hold them together, and we wave them around in different patterns. We make a blessing beforehand, we say some words of prayer together with it, and it's actually kind of bizarre, isn't it? And, and, and what's even more bizarre is that the Torah tells us to do this and says, Usmachtem lifnei Hashem elokeichem. That on this holiday, you should take, Vekachtem lechem, hadar, take this beautiful fruit. Kapot tmarim, take these palm fronds. Take this anaf, it's avot, this kind of thick tree branch. Ve'arve nachal, and these plants growing on the stream, for seven days, rejoice before God. It sounds like what the Torah is saying is, take these different plants, and somehow, holding these different plants together is going to create some kind of amazing joy and rejoicing. And that's literally what we do. We wave around these plants and we sing. But what's so joyous about holding these plants? And what is the deeper meaning of holding these plants together and rejoicing with them? That's what I want to explore with you. And to get in there... I want to raise perhaps a deeper question, which is when we look at the Torah's language, Torah says, Take for yourselves Take for yourselves on the first day a pre-eats hadar, a fruit of a tree. And that language, taking a fruit from a tree, is quite evocative. It actually brings us back to perhaps the very first fruit taken from a tree back in the Garden of Eden, where it says that Eve saw that the tree was desirous for her eyes and good to eat. She took from its tree, from its fruit, and she ate it. And we know what happened there. But it's a bit curious to me that we have a mitzvah here in Sukkot, lakachat preates, to take a fruit off of a tree. And you know what? While this mitzvah, as I've mentioned, involves us somehow rejoicing, with this fruit in our hand and these plants. If you recall, back in the Garden of Eden, one of the major outcomes of taking from that fruit was the opposite of joy, was sadness. God told Eve, you'll experience sadness in childbearing, in childbirth. And God told Adam that he'll have ongoing frustrations with his cultivation of the earth with planting and agriculture. He's going to eat his bread in sadness. That in the Garden of Eden, where fruit was taken and eaten, the outcome was sadness that is experienced in the most primal processes of bearing fruit of bringing life into the world and of cultivating 
the land, cultivating the earth, growing food to sustain our lives. That would result in sadness. And here on Sukkot, we're told, take the fruit and rejoice. Experience joy with them. And just to get a little more inside here, the fruit that we're being told to take here, pre-Eitz Hadar, well, the rabbis have a lot to say about the identity of that fruit. We know that our tradition is that the pre-Eitz Hadar is the species of the etrog. But Chachamim say that this word Hadar, which seems to mean some kind of beauty or elegance or glory, so the rabbis say, why is it called pre-Eitz Hadar? And if you look at the word pre, it's fruit, tree, hadar. It's the fruit hadar be'ilano mishana l'shana. It's a tree that dwells, sorry, a fruit that dwells on the tree throughout the year. In fact, it turns out that the etrog has multiple blossoming seasons throughout the year. It's not a one-time fruit uh, once a year, but it has a kind of ongoing, continuous growth, it dwells, it's hadar, it lives, the fruit lives on the tree, but even more so, the rabbis look at those words pre-eights, fruit, tree, and bring it all the way back to the initial command of creation when God said, let there be fruit trees, which in the understanding of the Midrash, there was a intention from God that the ta'am ha'eitz kita'am ha'pri, that a tree was meant to taste like its fruit. And that what ended up happening was that there was a disconnect between that intention, that vision for creation, and what resulted was what we know of as a tree that goes through a long growth process from seed to root and trunk and, and branch. And ultimately, at the end of this long process, there's something edible and tasty called and nourishing called a fruit. But if you tried to eat a tree, it would be disgusting and it's impossible for us to eat. Chazal says that the initial vision of creation is that the entire process of growth, the entire process of bearing fruit, of bringing life, the whole process itself was life-bearing, was nourishing. But that was not the result. And when the rabbis see these, this language about the etrog, the pre eight, they say, look at that. It's a tree that's a fruit. It's a fruit that's a tree. Ta'am ha'etz kitam ha'pri. Rashi brings this on the pasuk, that the etrog is that fruit, is that tree, that itself embodies the fruit. The whole process is tastes with the taste of the end product. That the means and the ends are somehow entwined together such that there isn't a separation between fruit and tree, between process and outcome. And the Ramban adds to this, the Ramban says, based again on Amirush Chazal, that actually the etrog was itself the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The etrog was the fruit that Eve coveted, that she took. So here, we put it all together and we're given a mitzvah to take from that very same tree, that very same fruit. And it is not a violation, and it is not something that will result in sadness, but actually it is a mitzvah, and the goal of it is usmachtem lifnei Hashem elokeichem, shivat yamim, is to rejoice in God's presence. So what's so happy about, about holding these plants together? What's so happy about taking this fruit in our hands? We'll come to that. But to get there, I want to explore a bit of, I believe, something that lies at the core of Sukkot and, and, and that helps inform its primary mitzvah. Sukkot is Zman Simchatenu of all the holidays. It is, it is the one that the Torah identifies as a time of rejoicing, a time of joy. We see this reflected not only in this mitzvah of the four species of the Aramenim, but also in what, what was happening in the Beit HaMikdash during this time, the Simchat Beit HaShoeva, the great rejoicing that took place because of the water libation festivities. Starting the second night of the holiday, 
the throngs of people would come to the temple. And the main ritual that was performed there was drawing water from the Tahomot, from the underground pools that were in the Shiloach beneath the temple, drawing that water and pouring it onto the altar where it fed through two holes and washed back down, drained back down to where it came from. And that pouring water onto the altar was the great water drawing that we that just caused people to erupt in ecstasy. There are reports of people who juggled fire and people doing all kinds of acrobatic tricks and nonstop music and dancing and people didn't sleep for the entire week. And what were they doing? They were lifting water from underground and pouring it back down the drain. And if we can understand what, what was so joyous about what happened there, I think we can understand a little bit also what is the root of joy in the Arba Minim and the Etrog and, and, and really this entire holiday and this entire season. You know, there's a, there's a strange kind of contrast going on in Sukkot because as we've said it's a time of joy and celebration and yet at the very same time it's a time of being very in touch with mortality with our temporal existence with death itself we read Megillat Kohelet we read Ecclesiastes on this holiday if you were to ask me which of the Megillas is, is the most joyous one, that's not the one that I would point to. That's the one that's filled with Hevel, Hevalim, Akol, Hevel. Everything is Hevel, is vapidness, is vanity, is passing wind, is air. Every pursuit, King Solomon says, he saw the end of it. He saw how it just came undone. And if we look at some of these themes, how they play out during Sukkot, Chag Asif, Sukkot's called the Harvest Festival, that language of Asif, of ingathering, is itself a term that evokes images of death. The Torah says, one of the descriptions of death is somebody is gathered into their people. And here we are celebrating Chag Asif, the festival of ingathering. If you think of the sukkah itself, right? The sukkah itself has a couple of basic requirements. Basic requirement number one is a dirat arai. It is a temporary dwelling place. It cannot be a fixed house, a fixed structure. It is flimsy and vulnerable and arai, temporal. It's not here to stay. Requirement number two there must be more shadow than light in there. At the heat of the day, the, the tzel, the shadow, has to override the light of the sun. It is temporal. It is in the shadows. It is in the darkness. It is in that passing, passing shade. And if we think about what defines a structure as a sukkah, it's actually the schach, it's the roof. The schach itself is at the time of harvest the psolet. It's the refuse, that extra useless, those cuttings and clippings that we have nothing to do with. We've harvested our crop, we've harvested our produce, the season's over, and the field is filled with all of this chaff all of these weeds and you take that chaff and those weeds and those dead branches and you throw it on top of you as the roof and just think for a moment that we're sitting in a dark structure and when we look up above us is the clippings that have fallen to the ground the image on some level is actually us being beneath the earth 
at the time of harvest and looking up and seeing those fallen clippings as our roof. You know, maybe it's not so crazy then that during the holiday of Sukkot, we invite in the spirits of our ancestors that we speak in every single night to be guests in our house or maybe to be guests in their house <laughs> if we take this image to heart. And just to add another few associations here, the sukkah itself actually begins to appear towards the end of Yom Kippur. If you notice, we read the book of Jonah and Mincha towards the end of the day of Yom Kippur. And at the very end of Jonah, after Jonah goes and the whole story of the whale in the city of Nineveh, what does he do? He goes and he sets up a sukkah. And he sets up a sukkah to protect him from the shade of the sun. And then all of a sudden he's suffering because the sun is beating upon him and he asks God to take his life. And a couple of times Jonah goes back and forth, God, kill me now. God gives him life. God, kill me again. The sukkah that Jonah sits in is a place where he confronts life and death and life again. And ultimately, the last interaction between him and God is God saying, hey, I care about my creatures. I care about you mortal beings. It's true. I created you. <laughs> You're limited, and yet I'm here to I'm here to care for you, or you're here because I care about you. And we also see in the descriptions of the Mishnah, Masechet Yoma, when the Ish Iti, the man of the moment, who walks the Seir Lazazel, the scapegoat, into the wilderness, right? The Kohen Gadol, the high priest, does a confession on one goat, and they send that goat off to be thrust off of a cliff well every bit of bit of the way the mishnah says there are 10 sukkahs set up from the temple in jerusalem till that cliff and in each sukkah the man walks in and they give him food and drink look at that come guest be a guest in our sukkah have a drink go to the next sukkah he's literally sukkah hopping through 10 sukkahs till he gets to the end and he throws this goat off of the cliff, the goat who's carrying all of the sins of Israel on its head. And when that goat is dismembered and killed, somehow symbolically it cleanses Israel of all of their misdeeds and all of their sinfulness and all of their shortcomings. And then this man sits in that last sukkah until dark, Imagine him just kind of like staring off into that cliff. Both absorbing the atonement, the acceptance of the day, and also really bearing witness to the atonement coming somehow on account of, of ultimately of death. Also, God allows the Israelites to, to live, but the goat has to die in their place and the sins die along with it. And part of how I see this link is that, you know, Yom Kippur is the great day of atonement, of kapara, of basically an acceptance where the message is God t tells us, yes, you are mortal, yes, you are limited, yes, you are flawed in so many different ways, and yet I accept you. And yet you can live in purity even in your human mortal state, and there's a kind of relief and a pardon and a gift that's granted from that. And yet we then come into Sukkot, and we are carrying the shadow of death with us still. You know, if, if it's my ultimate mortality, my ultimate death, that's going to grant me pardon in this world. So that's one thing. But I still need to 
reckon with how can I live in this world with that awareness that my time here is limited. And even more so when it comes to Sukkot, is there a chance to live and to rejoice in that life? More than being pardoned? Is there a option, a possibility for for joy in this life, in this mortal passing cloud, this cell over, as we call it in our Yom Kippur davening? So enter Sukkot, enter Chag HaAsif, the holiday of ingathering, the celebration of the ingathering, where we dwell in that temporary home. And we live there with the spirits, and we live there with the shadows. You know, there's actually a prayer that's said as we enter the sukkah. It's printed in most Sidurim, and, and one line in that prayer is, V'titenli zchut, we say, give me the privilege to sit and be covered, take refuge in the protection, in the secrecy of the shadow of your winged God at the moment that I depart from this world. When we enter the sukkah, we actually say a prayer, not only to be sealed for life, which is there, but also to dwell with God even in the moment where our mortal life ends. Sukkot is a time when we are encountering our mortality and seeking for a way to live in this world amidst the shadow of death. And let's come back to the Simcha Peteshoiva. Remember the cause of all of this joy and celebration was that they picked water up from underground and poured it on the altar, where it poured back down. Well, one significant piece of that is that all year round, our sacrifices to God included libations. There was liquid poured on the altar, but it was always a libation of wine, that very fine, very made-up, very luxurious drink that we spend a lot of time cultivating and perfecting and many steps taken. And not only does it taste good, and not only is it very valuable to us, but also has this wonderful effect. And of course, we take all year round our highest, most refined product to sacrifice to God, to honor God with. But on Sukkot, something else happens. We take the most elemental liquid there is. We take just the very water of life. And Chazal says that un that underground water, those tohomot, are flow through passageways that were there from the six days of creation. If you remember the very opening verses of the Torah, there is there is this deep water and we're drawing from that most elemental elemental basic sustainer of life that truly we have no credit for we didn't create it we're just drawing it up and we're pouring it onto the altar as the offering and the Talmud says that the drain holes on the altar are shaped like two nostrils. That the water, that elemental basic ingredient of life, we lift up from down below to meet the place where we devote ourselves to God, a place of holiness. We say that elemental ingredient of life itself is holy, is worthy to be on your altar, and we pour it back through the nostrils. We splash the water of life down through the passageways of breath, through the place where we ourselves receive life from, and we pour it back down the drain to the place that it comes from. And with that splash, we start to erupt in joy and music and dance and celebration. On some level, 
it is not so much about a joy that is despite our mortality. Yes, it is joy despite our mortality, but the rejoicing at the Simcha Beta Shoeva is a rejoicing that's actually in some ways intensified by the awareness of our mortality. That our being here is not the kavua, is not the fixed reality, it is not the given. Our being alive here in the most fundamental, basic way is itself a gift, a temporary gift. And the Simcha Peta is a week, and Sukkot really is a week of a kind of rejoicing in life, a full embrace of life in its momentary existence, in the Dirat Arai in which we live, that temporary dwelling place. You know, there's a beautiful um, depiction of Hillel Hazaken, Hillel the Elder, when he rejoiced in the Simcha Beta Shoevat, said when he rejoiced there, he would say, Imani Khan, Hakol Khan, if I am here, everything is here. Vim Khan, and if I'm not here, Mikan, who is here? As if to say, when we take into account, we absorb and confront the awareness of this context of our being alive, of our being here, even in these moments. What Hillel is celebrating is that deep awareness of, I'm here. And if I'm here, everything's here. But if I'm not here, if I'm not present in this life, these passing moments, these gifted moments after moment, Mikan, there's nobody here. That that encounter with life that is possible because of its temporary nature, is in a sense the fullness of what there is. It's all here. So what does this have to do with our four species? If you recall, eating from the tree of knowledge was not only the birth of sadness, it was also the birth of mortality. And, and obviously Adam and Eve didn't die on that day that they ate from the tree, but something died on that day. Something died in that experience. In that experience in which we reached for fruit instead of tree, in which we reached for the allure of the end product rather than perceiving the divine gift of the growth of what is in all of its stages then there was also a separation between our moment-to-moment -moment experience of life, the ongoing process that is dwarfed by and shadowed by the question of the fruit. What will I become? Where will I end up? What will I achieve? What will I fail? Because in that paradigm, ultimately, it's very hard to not fail if we recognize that our 
final goal, our final destination is, is death. That eating from the tree, plucking the fruit, was in a sense a transition of stepping into a life oriented towards some end goal that is ultimately unattainable. That ultimately doesn't belong to us, like the fruit didn't belong to us. And if you recall, that's also where shame began to settle in. That's where hiding began to settle in. That's where feeling insecure began to settle in. We can see why this was such a breakdown of the kind of security of that unbridled, naked existence of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that full sense of belonging with all that is, that very drastically and very quickly transitioned into a kind of disconnect from the whole atmosphere around them and the experience of the life that they were that they were engaged in, the life that they were living. So here's something that the four species perhaps come to come to respond to. Because if you look at these four species, there's a pre hadar as we said, a fruit from the tree. There's kapotzmarim, these kind of leaves, the palm fronds. Anaf avot, a branch of a tree, and then arve nachal, those sprouts, those sprouts growing off the stream, connected to the flowing water. And what occurs to me is that these four species, in some sense, they map the entire process of growth and vegetation. You have the fruit, you have the leaf, you have an anaf, a branch. And then you have the place where the plant touches the water that sustains it, the arvenachal. That on some level, these four fruits, these four species, <laughs> not four fruits, these four species, what we're holding in our hands is, in a sense, symbolizing the total process of life unfolding, of growth unfolding, of vegetation. Dafka not isolating the fruit from the tree, not isolating the end from the means, the final point from the process, but actually embracing the entirety of process, the current of life that flows through each stage and holding it all together close to our heart and joining with that there usmachtem lifnei Hashem elokeichem shivat yamim smachatem by the way doesn't mean be happy it means rejoice there's something active there but there's there's a, a kind of rejoicing that we contact, and I say it because it's not just a kind of mood state of, oh, now we're happy on Sukkot. It's something deeper than being happy. It's a kind of engagement and in coming into contact with the flow of life in its movement, in its process, in its formation moment to moment, that is truly <laughs> what defines our being here. We are a product of and a ongoing unfolding of life, moment to moment, flowing through us. When we hold that together, hold ourselves together with it, we contact that flowing force So there we have a chance to rejoice even in this temporary hut, even within that shadow. And just think of the image we stand in the sukkah with the four minim, 
moving them, na'anuim, just to move, to be engaged in that movement of life. That's davka taking place under the shade of the fallen branches of the schach, within that hut of the passing shadow. There, davka, we are holding and being held together with the flow of being. That's what's called rejoicing. That's what the Torah says, Usmachtem lifnei Hashem elokeichem, standing in the presence of, of our Creator, when we hold that, when we hold on to that tafka, you know, there's a crazy, wild Midrash, Vayikra Rabbah, that says, it finds a pasuk, how each of the four ingredients of the four species, you know, and they bring a pasuk of why the fruit of Hadar is Hashem. Then, and they bring a pasuk there too. The Midrash identifies each of the four species as Hashem, as God. The Midrash is saying we are holding on to God. We are being held with God with that flow of divine being and life. So is there a chance to live in this world, to touch Simcha after Yom Kippur, after recognizing that we are granted pardon to be here despite our ultimate limitations? possibility for joy, it seems to me, is something that can grow out of embracing life in this moment. Embracing being here in this moment. Embracing our life that takes place within that shadow of a flow of life that includes life and death. And of which we are a rising wave. Imanikan, am I here now? Am I here now? Imanikan, Hakol Khan, this is where it is. I want to share one more piece here about the Priyatadar that. Uh, is a little bit taking poetic license, but I found a few things to support this idea. In the Kabbalah, there's a, a very fundamental and, and deep concept called the Mitat HaMalachim, the death of the Edomite kings. And this originates in, in Bereshi chapter... 36, the end of Parsha Fayishlach. It's a series, a section of Psukim that most people never pay any attention to. And for good reason. It talks about the descendants of Esav and the chieftains of Esav and the families of Esav. And finally, here are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before there reigned a king for the children of Israel. And it lists here a list of names, Vayimloch, Bela ben Baor. This king reigned, and this was the name of his city, Vayamot Bela, and he died. Vayimloch Tachtav, then the next one, Vayamot, and he died. And, and there are eight generations of kings mentioned here. In the Kabbalah, this reigning and dying of the kings relates to what is commonly known as Shvirata Kelim, the shattering of the vessels. The attempt or early stages of creation in which the energy of life and the container of life could not be aligned and matched together. And so it resulted in shattering and breakage after breakage after breakage or what is midrashically described by the rabbis as before God created our, our universe as we know it, God was creating universes and destroying them, 
unsustainable realities that didn't just die in the sense of a final death, but that exploded into countless bits and pieces that the subsequent stages were built upon. And that our world, after these processes of breakage, is not built from scratch, but is in fact composed of those shattered shards, the scattered sparks of light, the shattered vessels, the death of all those kings that finally the process of creation of divine emergence reaches a point of enough homeostasis and stability to hold together a life-supporting world. And our world is then, our lives are then, this ongoing process of seeking to collect those broken pieces and, and bring them back to unify with their source and find their appropriate composition and place in the grand picture. Why am I saying any of this? Because the eighth king, the final king in this series of kings, his name was Hadar. Hadar, just like the pre-8th Hadar, just like the fruit that we hold on Sukkot. And what's significant about this king is that it says, Vayimloch Hadar, he reigns as king, but it doesn't say that he dies like all the previous kings. And Kabbalistically, this is understood to refer to the world that can be created, the Malchut, the kingdom that, that is formed and that can be sustained. And something else about this king is that he's the only one who has a wife. He's the only one who's coupled, who's we're given a name of his of his partner, Vashemishto Mehitavel. He has a wife named Mehitavel, which seems to have something to do with the goodness of God. Remember when God creates our world, Ayarlin Kitov, that language that repeats over and over again, a kind of recognition of ah, oh, there's something good here. And this king of this world where we can finally say Kitov, it's good now. His name is Hadar. His name is beautiful. His name is elegance. <laughs> like that fruit that we are commanded to take during this holiday and rejoice with and rejoice in. And part of what strikes me here is that the kind of beauty, the kind of Hadar or Hidur that Sukkot is lifting up for us is the experience of redemptive moments in this lifetime. Because when I come into contact with something in this moment that just kind of clicks in, that just feels like I'm here, I can be here, there is a beauty in that that's somewhat ineffable that's somewhat hard to define, and perhaps this is exactly why, because it's not pinned down, it's not a kavua, it's not a fixed reality, but it's touching something of the beauty of a moment. And that experience of the beauty in being alive in those moments, in these moments, is perhaps an experience in a moment that transcends the chronological beginning and end of life. That there's something in experiencing beauty in being here in this world that, that allows us to taste something that lives beyond life itself. Or that is actually the chai the life of life, 
right? It is, in a sense, drinking a bit from that water that we draw from the depths and pour back down. It is something of experiencing the very force and giving of that which sustains us, that which grants what we call life. But it, in this passing moment, <laughs> is encountering something that, that outlives the confines of our life. The language Hadar is actually brought up in, in other contexts as the kind of enclosing of things, the way in which something takes form. For example, in, in Psalms, say about about says that that God is you have been malbish yourself you enclose yourself god in hod and hadar and this kind of beauty and glory and what does that look like you wrap yourself in light like a cloak and hang the heavens, the skies, like a curtain. That the image here is that God, in a sense, takes from that pure, endless light and sews clothes out of it for God's self and hangs a heaven for us to be able to look at and perceive a form of light that is, in truth, a mere clothing and covering of that divine light. And there's something in the beauty that it communicates to us that allows us to contact that which we otherwise cannot perceive or be in relationship with. It is through the enclothing, through the taking on form that we encounter the beauty and that we touch something beyond what is merely here or we actually touch something that is more truly, more profoundly here. The other passage that comes to mind, Oz v'hadar levusha, her garment is one of strength, of power, and hadar. Again, that kind of beauty, v'atishak liyom acharon. And she laughs to the final day. Again, here in our context, with an awareness of the Yom Macharon, of the day that everything ends. From where is there a possibility for laughter? From where is there a possibility for an expansive breath, for a moment of opening to something else? Oz v'hadar It is something that we encounter in our incarnate reality, in that enclosing itself. Even here in our limits, even here in this world of cloaks and curtains, in these forms that we are that I don't mean to diminish that are truly so precious but it's so counterintuitively by really entering into and inhabiting the form that we are given in the moment that we are given that we have an opportunity to breathe a little bit of that air that precedes it and transcends it. It's not Sham. It's not if I can get out of this world, if I can get out of this body, out of this form, then I can really contact God. No. It's if I can fully inhabit these moments, this one moment, this one body, this one experience. I can contact the life that is 
moving through me, moving through it, that is simply here. can smell the fruit and be touched by its beauty without needing to eat and consume, but to live and allow it to live here too. Mm. Our world is built on the death of the kings. It already is triatamitim. It already is the life after death. We are sustained by a breath, by water, that precedes our being here, and that continues beyond our being here in these clothes. And Sukkot and the Sukkah and the Arbad Aminim are opening a doorway, an opportunity for us to contact moments, tastes of that eternal being that forms who and what we are and what our world and our life is. And so at the end of Sukkot, the Mishnah describes that everyone would, on Roshan lay all their aravot against the Mizbeach, against the altar, after their final encircling. It says, Upishat p'tiratan, mahem omrim, what would they say at their time of departure, the time of p'tira? In a sense, enacting the ultimate death, they would say, Yofilach Mizbeach, Yofilach Mizbeach. You contain, you possess so much beauty, O altar. You are so beautiful, O altar, because they have been in touch with the beauty that is here that we can contact here while we are here in this life. This podcast is supported in part from a grant from the Hadar Institute. The music is by Rav Daniel Cohn. The audio engineer is David Kwan. For more from the Shefa Podcast Network, visit our Facebook page and please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts.